Hi everyone, this is Kate Vingritis. I'm an attorney in the Aging and Disabilities and SSI units at Community Legal Services. I'm joined by my colleague Pam Walls, who's a supervising attorney here at CLF in the Aging and Disabilities Unit. We're so excited to have this opportunity to talk with everyone about the Fed, um, to answer questions, hear what people have experienced, and to share the knowledge that we've um, gained so far on how this fairly new assessment tool has been both developed, um, used in practice, and how to advocate for your clients. So we're going to start with the um, with the waiver application process, which recently had a, a little bit of a tweak. As many of you who may have been familiar with the old process um, know there's been a change where there's now a home visit by the independent enrollment broker, who for Pennsylvania is Maximus, which is happening right off really early on, which is great. It's a big change that many people were advocating for for years. So the way that somebody who is interested in receiving um, waiver services or really you know, any long-term care, this should really say long-term care application process, is that they can call the IEB Maximus. The number is provided here. On this first call, the IEB is supposed to answer questions about um, what long-term care services look like. They then schedule the first home visit and they're supposed to inform the consumer about all the papers that they might need to visit so that someone can prepare and get those. This is also the point where the IEB is supposed to ask the consumer who their primary care doctor is or who the doctor is who can complete a physician certification form. For those who aren't as familiar with this, a physician certification form is a document that is presented to a physician they indicate the diagnoses that the consumer has. They indicate their level of care, if it's a nursing facility clinically eligible, NFCE, nursing facility ineligible, NFI, or if they're ICF, which is intermediate care facility uh, level. And they need to complete everything on that form, otherwise it will be rejected. So this is a very, very important piece of information. The IEB will ask the consumer who can complete this, and they will send the form directly to the doctor to return to the IEB. We wanted to make clear that there's also another way you can start the application process. Instead of just having the consumer call the IEB, people can also call their local area agency on aging, which is the also known as the triple A's, and they're able to help assist people um, in beginning this process. They will connect them with the IEB. They can answer any additional questions. I think some people prefer this because it might move things along quicker or if they have a good relationship with their AAA, they might be comfortable with that. We definitely see it work both ways. So that's, that's another option. Another thing that could happen on this first call is that the consumer may be asked to select their managed care organization. So currently, both in the Southwest and the Southeast in Pennsylvania, we have community health choices in full implementation mode. For the rest of the state, which is known as the T, which is zone three, community health choices will be implemented on January 1st, 2020. So by basically by the time the application process is done, anyone applying now would be in an MCO. 
and they have three MCO choices. These are AmeriHealth Caritas, known as Keystone First in the Southeast, UPMC, or PA Health and Wellness. It's possible this might not happen at this first call, it can happen at other times, but it's helpful to know that it could happen and that someone might um, want to consider what those options are. So the next step is the first home visit, and this is where we've seen the change. This used to happen later in the process. It now happens right after the call, which is really, really great because it helps ensure that consumers know everything they need to get. They have a lot of assistance in completing the application process. So this is where the consumer completes a lot of forms, but mainly the PA 600, which is the application for medical assistance, which is a necessary part of the application process. Um, there are other forms that are connected to the PA 600 that have to do with financial eligibility, which depending on the consumer's individual situation, the IEB will also collect. And it is at this point, after the PA 600 has been completed, that the IEB sends it to the County Assistance Office, also known as the CAO. And the CAO, as we'll talk about later, determines financial eligibility for long-term care. Currently in CHC zone, so the Southwest and Southeast, this is where the selection of managed care organizations would happen if it hadn't been um, done on the first call. Previously, in non-CHC zones, this wasn't happening, but it should be happening pretty soon given the, um, the zone three or phase three implementation that's going on now. There might be other forms presented that have to do with the program options, um, but the main one is the PA 600 and financial eligibility. Moving on to the big one, which is really, really integral to what we're gonna talk about today. The third step is when the AAA, the Area Agency on Aging comes to the consumer's home to do the home visit to administer the Fed. This should happen um, shortly after the, the first step. There was a second step. It is um, scheduled by the AAA. They will directly call the consumer to find out when is a good time for them to come. The consumer may have anybody present that they wish. So if they want to make sure that they schedule it during a time when a family member or a caregiver can be there, that is completely within their right and they should uh, feel free to, to vocalize that. At this meeting, the assessor who contracts with the AAA will, com will complete the Fed assessment. We're gonna talk a lot about what that looks like. What I'll say here is that these assessors are trained on how to use the Fed assessment. They complete a 10 module online training program, which includes information on how to address each item on the Fed. They are trained to look at these questions, to look at these items as um, not questions, but a series of questions that they might have to ask to get the information and encourage to use a really conversational approach. Um, and they cover in this training a variety of case scenarios about how to handle different parts of the Fed. An important note here is that the outcome of the Fed may not be available. Um, and the reason is, is that it's only available if there's an internet connection and the assessor can submit the Fed at that time. If there's no internet connection, they can't do that and so they can't complete it and tell the consumer their, um, their outcome. There's no reason they shouldn't be able to tell them the outcome, but um, I think it's possible to imagine scenarios where they wouldn't feel comfortable 
but it's important to note that they might not actually be able to if they can't connect to the internet. And also just to note that the FED outcome is just one step in the eligibility process. So if someone found eligible on the FED doesn't mean that they're fully eligible for long-term care. After the FED is completed, we, the information um, goes back to the IEB. In order for the IEB to make a clinical eligibility determination, they must have two documents, the FED results and the physician certification, which we talked about in step one as going out to the doctor from, um, from the IEB. If the physician certification and the FED results don't match, for example, the physician certifi certification says that the consumer is nursing facility clinically eligible, but the FED results say that the person is nursing facility ineligible, NFI, then the application will go to the medical director at the Office of Long-Term Living for review. Another situation in which this could happen is if the assessor disagreed with the FED results and they have an ability to note that in the FED. At this point, if the direct medical director at OLTL agrees that the consumer is NFI, the Office of Long-Term Living issues the denial notice with full appeal rights. If the um, medical review finds that the person is NFCE or both the Fed and the physician certification indicate they're NFCE, the application moves on to the county assistance office where they determine financial eligibility. The important timeline here is that the IEB must receive the completed FED and the physician certification within 86 days of the first home visit. So things have to keep moving, and if they are unable to receive either by that 86-day time period, the application will be closed, and they will have to start a new application um, and determine if information such as a new PA600 is needed. One thing to note is that a FED is um, good for a year, as is a physician certification form, but that there has been a lot of guidance from the Office of Long-Term Living that a physician certification form can't just be updated with a whited out change in date or signature, um, and that if there's any question that it's invalid, it will um, not be used to determine clinically, clinical eligibility. So the last step in the application process is for the um, application to go to the county assistance office. This will only happen for consumers who have been found NFCE. The County Assistance Office has already received the PA600, that's the Medicaid application, um, but it's possible that there are still financial documents that are outstanding that the CAO needs to review to determine if the consumer meets the income and resource eligibility. Um, the waiver and nursing home um, programs are both have strict income and resource limits, which we're not going to cover um, in any depth really at this training, but it's important to note that this is where this determination is made. If any documents are missing, the county assistance office will send a notice to the consumer and they will say, we need to have this information by this date or your application will be denied. Once the county assistance office has all those documents, it has to issue a PA-162, which is a notice that will have either an approval or a denial of the application. This will also have full appeal rights. This needs to happen within 90 days of when the IEB starts the application. 
And if there is no decision issued within 90 days of when the consumer starts the application, they can ask for a fair hearing. The county assistance office will be the entity that sends this notice, the 162, to the consumer, and they will also send it to the IEB and the managed care organizations for all the um, parts of the state where CHC has been implemented. Um, the, the only other note about this is that, just so for those who are curious about the inner workings, once someone is found NFCE, um, the IEB triggers this process by sending a form called a 1768, which requests waiver determination based on financial eligibility. So most of the information has already been transmitted from that initial PA 600, but it's possible information is missing. For those of you who've worked on these, you know that many, many financial documents can be required at this point as there is a, um, a look back period at people's bank statements, transfer of assets, which, um, which can be very cumbersome to consumers. That is the end of the fairly quick review of this application process. Um, we will gladly take questions at this time if anyone has them. You can also feel free to ask questions later. And you can also always feel free to, um, to email or call either Pam or myself. I'm going to give well, people a couple seconds. Oh, yeah. how long is the look back period? That is a good question. So when you apply for long-term care, you are asked to provide five years of bank statements, which is really <laughs> a lot. And um, I, our understanding from working with many clients is they find this to be very, very intrusive. And um, the level of scrutiny feels sometimes a little unfair. But yeah, five years, and this is looking at if people have um, disposed of resources, if someone is giving away money to try to become eligible for um, long-term care services. This is especially important to see if people are giving away, it can be cash, stocks, um, anything, especially if you're giving away property for less than fair market value. This is really important. That will cause problems. Uh, we can't get into the, the details of this, but if you are working with anyone who is looking to apply um, or thinks in the next five years that they might need long-term care, if you are not familiar with this, please talk to us. <laughs> but the, the, the basic gist of it is that there can be penalty periods for disposing of assets, um, both for, for the value they are and for less than fair market value, and it's a really tricky area. Any other questions? While we wait to see if there's any other questions, um, attorneys that are requesting CLE credit for your participation in the webinar today, I have just launched the first of the pop-up boxes with the poll question on. Please respond, you'll have two minutes to do so. And it doesn't look like we have any questions so far, so um, feel free to go on with the training whenever you're ready. Okay, great. Um, hi, this is Pam Walls, um, also from Community Legal Services, and I'll be talking about the next few slides. So I want to start out talking about the Fed by talking about what the definition is for NFCE. Uh, Pennsylvania has a definition for NFCE, which, which is here in this slide, um, and uh, 
it defines NFCE as an individual who has an illness, injury, disability, or medical condition diagnosed by a doctor. And as a result of that condition, they require care and services above the level of room and board, and a physician has to certify that the person's NFCE, and the care and services are either skilled care as defined by the Medicare program, or uh, healthcare, health-related care and services that may not be as inherently complex as skilled nursing, but which are needed and provided on a regular basis in the context of a planned program of healthcare and management, and were previously only available through institutional facilities. So I wanted to point this out because while the Fed is the tool that uh, OLTL is using to determine eligibility, it's not actually a regulation. Um, this is, at, you know, the Fed is only is is uh, intended to determine whether people meet this definition. But um, you should remember that this is actually the definition. So one um, option available to you at a hearing is to argue that the person meets this definition. Um, in the past, we've ha had cases where we had to prove that people were NFCE, and because this is the definition, this is what we used. And um, I just invite you to note that the language is really broad. There's an awful lot that you can, you can do here in arguing that your client meets this. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk um, about, about hearings. Um, this definition um, is derived from two other definitions. Um, one is the definition in the Pennsylvania regulations that defines who is eligible for what used to be called intermediate, uh, intermediate care, facility level of care. And the second definition is the federal Medicare regulations, which define who can get Medicare coverage for skilled um, nursing facility um, care. I also wanted to give just a little bit of history and background on what came before the Fed. So until April of this year, the tool that was used by the AAAs in determining whether people met the NFCE um, level of care was a tool called the LCD, or the Level of Care Determination Tool. Um, it was a much longer set of questions that asked for a lot more medical information. Um, it was about 24 pages long, it took an hour or more to complete, and it asked for all of the person's medical diagnoses, their medications, it went through each body system and asked whether the person had any impairments in that area, and for some information about how those impairments were managed. It also had a short uh, cognition test called the SLUMS, um, and so little test for, uh, about the person's cognition, and it asked questions about things like whether the person was at risk for falls and how long they could be left alone. And then it also had a section um, asking for the person's uh, need for help with activities of daily living and also about their mobility. So it was a really full assessment that gave assessors a pretty complete picture, it was intended to at least, of, of the person's conditions and their functioning. Um, then it called for the assessor, after they completed all this, to use their professional judgments to determine whether the NFCE definition was met. The department felt that there were several problems with this. First of all, they felt that it was too subjective. They were worried that, it, um, that assessors might feel badly for people and might kind of uh, find them NFCE because they felt badly for them. They were also concerned that they felt that the rules were not, that their outcomes were not uniform from assessor to assessor or from county to county. And in fact, CMS had concerns about it as well, and the department said that CMS actually withheld funds at a certain point because of this. 
So the department decided to, to make a change and do something about this. And they convened a stakeholder group um, and settled on, on creating a new type of tool drawn from something called the InterRI. So InterRI is, first of all, an organization. It's a consortium of researchers and healthcare practitioners um, associated with the University of Michigan, which creates instruments and tools that are intended to use a research-based approach to decision-making about eligibility for um, long-term services and supports and other kinds of support programs for people with disabilities. Um, and also for deciding how much services people in these programs should get. In other words, what kinds of services and how many hours. The tools that InterI creates are copyrighted and states can seek licenses to use them. And a number of states across the country do use them in administering their Medicaid-funded LTSS programs. In fact, um, here in Pennsylvania, the three CHC MCOs are using something called the InterI Home Care Assessment System, which is one of their instruments, to do their comprehensive assessments of each CHC participant. And they use the results of this assessment um, as part of their person-centered planning process and to develop um, uh, service plans. It's a long assessment with lots of questions. And the, quest the answers to the questions are designed to inform the service planning process, which, is, which has to be um, person-centered and individualized to the person. But there are also interri instruments which can be used to determine functional eligibility for LTSS programs. And that's what L OLTL decided to use. So DHS contracted with a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh and with the InterI Consortium to take a small subset of the questions from the InterI Home Care Assessment Instrument and create a tool to determine level of care eligibility for LTSS programs. It's a really different approach from what we had before with the LCD. With the Fed, the function, the, the focus is on people's functioning and really not at all on their medical conditions. The Fed doesn't ask at all about what the applicant's medical conditions or diagnoses are, but rather it just asks about what help they need in several what, what they call domains of functioning. So the domains are what InterI sees as the main areas of functioning that um, are supposed to be indicative of um, whether people need supports to be able to um, remain in their homes. And the domains are, there are five of them, are um, activities of daily living, which includes bathing, personal hygiene and dressing, toileting, eating, mobility, and cognition. So the questions are all, or many, many of the questions are about these areas. The Fed, which they created, um, is much shorter than the LCD. And this is seen as a plus in OLTL's view because they wanted something that didn't take an hour, an hour and a half to complete. Um, we were really concerned about how few questions there are. And what InterI would say about that is that their research says that the answers to this limited set of questions about these domains tells you everything you need to know. And that people who have other needs that they're not asking about um, are already going to score high in response to other questions and that the questions that are actually in the, inter, uh, in the Fed pick up um, sort of stand-ins for these other, other issues um, and tell you what you need to know. 
Another thing to know about the Fed is that not all of the questions get scored. There are about 50, and I, I shouldn't call them questions, they're called items. There are about 50 items, only 20 of them actually get scored in determining eligibility. Another thing about the structure of the Fed is that the way the interi um, structures its instruments is that it asks people and it explores what their functioning has been in the three day, what they call the three day look back period, the three days prior to the day um, of the assessment. So it doesn't ask, you know, generally what help you need. It asks in the past three days what help the person um, uh, needed. Um, and this, this can, this is, this is something that's been a huge concern for advocates across the country. Because what if somebody um, didn't, didn't, um, didn't have help during that period of time, so they didn't actually um, perform that function? They, you know, they weren't able to bathe because there's no one there to help them. How is that handled? Um, and also, uh, one of the questions, for instance, is about wandering. Um, so what they ask is whether the person wandered in the last three days. Well, people who wander don't necessarily do that every other day, but it's, you know, if they did it a week ago, that's still a huge cause for concern. So this three-day look-back period, which is um, in the structure of all of InterI's um, instruments, has been really controversial and, and, is, and, and can, be, can be problematic and is something to watch for. In developing the Fed, DHS's approach was that they weren't changing the, the definition of NFCE or the standard that people had to meet to become eligible. And in fact, in developing it, they called the, L, the LCD, they said that, that they were going to keep it as the same standard as, as the outcomes from the LCD, and they called the LCD the gold standard. It was the thing that it was indicative of whether people were NFCE. So just quickly, I just want to talk about what they did um, connected to this. In order to determine whether this new tool they were developing, the Fed, used the same standard, they did a little bit of testing. They administered both the LCD and the Fed to 100 applicants. And then they looked to see whether the outcomes were the same for the, for the two tools. And the answer was not exactly. At the highest and lowest levels of um, of, of impairment, the results matched up. So the most impaired people were found NFCE using the Fed and also using the LCD. And people who had very little needs were found NFI using both tools. But in the middle, it was about 50-50. Um, and this raises real concerns about the validity of the Fed. Um, we had discussions, pretty extensive discussions with DHS um, about our concerns about that. And one of our big concerns was that many of the questions that didn't even count seemed important, including questions about activities of daily living. Uh, you know, in my experience, a lot of our clients who come to us for help um, need, the first thing they need help with is, is ADLs like bathing and dressing, while um, the ability to eat and toilet independently is something that a lot of people manage to hang on to until, um, you know, for, for a long time. So in response to these, some of these concerns, DHS did make some, some changes to the Fed scoring, um, including um, counting ADLs, and they also changed the scoring mechanism. So let's talk just a little bit about the Fed tool itself. Um, it's, got, it's got sections on um, cognition, mood and behavior, functional status, continence, and treatments and procedures. And I'll just say that that last category doesn't count at all toward the scoring. 
On cognition, there are items that call for the assessor to check the person's short-term memory by asking them to remember something after five minutes. Uh, and another item where they, they, they check the person's ability to perform multi-step tasks. And they also check to see whether the person seems to recognize their caregivers and familiar um, locations. The cognitive, this, this cognitive piece has been a real concern. Um, it's much less in-depth than the cognitive assessment that was on the LCD. Um, but what OLTL said was that um, while there was a whole um, test called the slums on the LCD, assessors frequently skip that assessment. So they think that just having these three items is better than, than what they had before. So here's a page that shows you um, a page from the, from the, from the Fed itself. Um, and that is one of the two documents also that we emailed to everyone um, yesterday if you want to take a look at, at more of it. Um, this is page three, and it's section D, which addresses activities of daily living. Um, so if you look at it, you can see that there are here under section D, there are um, items A through I, which asks questions about all the different activities of daily living. It asks how the person bathes, how they perform personal hygiene, how they dress um, their upper and lower body, how they walk, how they move between locations on the same floor, how they transfer onto or off of the toilet, how they, how they use the toilet, and eating. And then each of these items is scored on a score of one to eight. And if you look at the near the top of the item under number one, you can see the, the, the scale of the scores from zero, which is, indicates that the person is independent. Um, one, which is also independent, but set up help only. Two, which is supervision. Three, which is limited assistance, all the way down to six, which is total dependence. And eight means the activity didn't occur at all during the three-day look-back period. The, so the assessor is supposed to go through each of these items and use a combination of asking the person, asking other family or caregivers if they're present, um, or um, asking to demonstrate if, if it's something that can be demonstrated um, or if there's some question about whether the, um, the information being given is accurate. And then they, they score them um, uh, using the zero to eight scoring here um, for each item. Uh, I want to say just a little bit more, more about the three-day period. One thing that we were concerned about about the three-day period was, you know, what happens if the person during that period of time needed help but didn't have it, um, which would happen a lot, you would think, because these are people who are applying for services and may not have help. We were concerned if the assessor asked what help they received, um, but they didn't have any help, that the that, that need for help in that area might, get, might not get picked up. We, we raised this with DHS and talked with them about that. And they've agreed that what the assessor is supposed to ask is what help the individual needed, not what they were able to receive. So this is, I think, an important thing to watch and make sure um, that assessors are doing and to make sure that this is the question that's being asked um, in your client's cases. Um, assessors can review medical records if, if they're available. And they're supposed to ask family members if there's any indication that the answers that they're getting from the applicant may not be completely accurate. For example, if you have a person who with a diagnosis of brain injury or they have dementia and there's some concern that they may be understating 
their needs or they, perhaps they can't fully describe their functioning. Um, and this is especially a concern here because the assessors may not know all of the person's diagnoses, especially if they don't have the physician certification form available. So after all the items on the, the pages of the Fed are completed, the responses are scored using something OLTL calls the Fed Tool Translation Matrix. And so, and here is, is that, that translation matrix, and it's the other document that we emailed um, yesterday. This is the tool that is used um, to, to determine the scoring. So if you look at it, in the first row along the top are all of the items from the Fed which get scored. The rest of them don't count. So if you look, um, the first column A has um, item B1, cognitive skills for daily decision making. Column three has the, um, the ADLs that we were just talking about um, on that page of the Fed that we looked at with bathing and personal hygiene. Um, then the column down the left side has all the possible scores from zero to six. And I know some things get an eight, but eight means it wasn't performed at all. So here they just score from zero to six. Um, uh, and so these scores down the side correspond to those scores that we were talking about before, so go back um, from zero for independence to six for total dependence. Um, in the boxes below each item, it says what scores count um, as either a partial or a full deficit. So for example, in column A for, I, for item B1, which is about cognitive skills for daily decision making, if the person got a score of two to four, they're considered to have a partial deficit. And if they got a score of five, they're considered to have a full deficit. Or if you look in column E, which again is about bathing and other ADLs, a score of three to six on any two of the sub-items, which they call bullets here, is a partial deficit, while a score of three to six on three or more of those bullets counts as a full deficit. So um, you need to go back, so you can get a copy of your FED, I should say, by requesting it uh, of your client's FED from Maximus. And you want to go to that to see what score your client received for each item. And then you can look at the, at the translation matrix to see how many of their responses got them either a full or a partial deficit. And to be found in a CE, the person needs to have either a full deficit or three partial deficits. And you can see at the bottom of the page, um, it says that um, there. Um, a problem in figuring all this out is that the printed out version of the Fed that you get from Maximus doesn't say what number corresponds to each response. So it'll just say, for instance, it'll have the independent box filled in for, for an item. It doesn't have the numbers there to indicate what score the person got. Um, so I've been handling that by going back to the blank copy of the Fed, which um, we emailed yesterday because it tells you at the top of each item what, what score is associated with each response so that you can use that um, to look at the Fed um, translation matrix. Um, as Kate was saying earlier, if the assessor disagrees with the outcome of the Fed, they're able to indicate that in a text box. And they can also add notes in text boxes at the end of each session if they've got any observations that they think are important um, and they want to make a record of or want the medical director to know about. 
All right, so we're going to stop now. It's a lot of information. I want to stop and see if people have questions. While we wait for questions, I am going to launch the second poll for attorneys requesting CLE credits for the webinar. Please just click yes or no on your screen. And if you have any questions, please type them in the chat box, which can be found if you hover your mouse on the bottom of your screen. Anybody have any questions? Yeah, we're happy to answer questions about how the Fed um, question uh, items are answered or the tool um, for the translation matrix, which is, is, not, is not difficult, but it takes a little bit of looking at to um, understand how it works. All right, well, we could move on. And then if, in the meantime, if people have other questions, um, they should feel, feel free to um, type them in and we can go back. Hi, this is Kate again. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about some two parts of this process, the medical director reviews and reassessments. So we've already covered um, medical director reviews a little bit in indicating that they are triggered when the physician certification and the results of the Fed are not in alignment, meaning one says NFI and the other says NFCE or if, as Pam just explained, the assessor indicates in the, um, the outcome box at the end of the Fed that they disagree with the result. Um, so those, either of those uh, things could trigger the medical director review. This can't happen until the physician certification is received because clinical eligibility cannot be determined until that has been um, completed. What's, what's helpful to note, but also we have the caveat that we're not exactly sure what medical director review looks like. It is our understanding from the cases we've handled that there is no notification to the consumer or their advocate, if someone's representing them, that medical director review is happening. So to know that it's been triggered, you really have to stay on top of the results of the Fed, which you should be able to get by contacting Maximus um with it as long as you have some you know information indicating that your client is allowing you to receive their their information um, they should be able to tell you shortly after the fed has been completed what the result is so if you know that there is an nfce physician certification and that the fed was nfi that case is going to medical director review it sounds like this is happening pretty quickly um, which can be concerning because it means there might not be enough time to really submit any materials. But we have been told by OLTL and by Maximus that advocates and consumers can submit information directly to OLTL, to the medical director, in order to, um, to argue or to show why the consumer meets the um, NFCE definition, despite what the Fed said, or that the Fed was, to argue that the Fed was wrong. So any records that you have, any information that can provide some context. I think where we're seeing some issues here is that the, the current 
sort of mantra is that the Fed is about functional eligibility. Just diagnoses alone and medical conditions alone isn't what controls. Obviously, what controls is the, is the definition of NFCE. So what matters is how someone's medical condition impacts them. But what we're seeing is that it's possible that medical conditions can have a number of impacts on someone's functional limitations, which could, may not be captured by the Fed. And to the extent that you have records or documents that can articulate this, or as advocates, you want to submit um, an explanation, OLTL says that they are open to receiving those, and it could be very helpful to the medical director, Dr. Appel. I also see that we have two questions that have come up. So once we, ooh, yeah, once we um, get to the end, we're, we're close to the end, so I think we're probably going to hold on to those until then. But thank you for the questions. Keep them, keep them coming. So reassessments are supposed to take place annually, and this is the requirement that um, that the Office of Long-Term Living has that we determine if someone remains functionally eligible. For the parts of the state where CHC is in place, um, these have been happening when they come up for an individual by the Community Health Choices Service Coordinator. For the places in the state where we have not yet transitioned to community health choices, these are being done by the aging well assessors um, or people who contract with the local triple A's. So the difference between the reassessments and the initial eligibility determination is that a physician certification is not obtained. Um, even though um, they're only good for a year, they're just looking at the Fed. One thing that we have looked into is what happens if somebody is in a nursing home already. So if they are in a nursing home, as if they are you know, in the community, the assessor can review medical records. Um, what we're hearing again is that because the focus is on functional eligibility and not, or functional ability, I'm sorry, and not just medical condition, there doesn't seem to be as much of an um, initiative on the part of assessors to look at this. So this is something that we're really encouraging advocates to be involved with to the extent possible to make sure that records showing sort of ongoing issues, especially those that might not have come up in the three-day look back, are being um, made clear to the assessor and if necessary to the OLTL medical director. All right, now we're moving on to having some technical difficulties. There we are, on to the appeal process. All right, so let's talk a little bit about appeals in this area. The functional eligibility denial notices uh, are issued by OLTL right after the Fed determination, and they sh it should specify whether the reason for the finding of ineligibility is due to the physician certification saying the person was not NFCE, whether it was the Fed, and it should say if, if there was a if, if they came, if they, those two were in conflict and the medical director reviewed it, it should say um, that, that the medical director reviewed it and found that the person was not NFCE. And that should give you some idea of what the issues are. The first thing uh, I think to do in this situation is to get information from Maximus. Um, and you ne you'll need um, a HIPAA compliant uh, release. And you can send it to Maximus and ask for a copy. Um, in particular, you want to get a copy of your client's Fed and physician certification. 
there's a hearing packet which um, which Maximus has been sending us um, that that you can request, and it'll have the Fed, the PC, and um, most recently we got sort of an odd document that was labeled hearing information, which was supposed to have information about um, about the process and eligibility, but instead had sort of confusing text from various waivers, and seemed like some of the information was out of date. So you may see that we, we've asked OLTL what's going on with that. Um, and hopefully that will become a more useful document at some point. Um, if you want to get this from Maximus, um, we found the easiest way is our contact there, Mary Stonewood, and we can share her um, contact information with you if you need it. She's really good about getting back with that information, which will give you a starting point for figuring out what is, you know, what happened in your client's um, application. A couple of things to think about doing um, before a hearing um, are, First, if you, if you interview your, you'll want to, of course, interview your client and ask them a lot of questions to try to determine what needs they have and um, that are relevant to a finding of NFCE. Um, and if you get the sense that the Fed that was performed didn't accurately pick all of that up, you can ask um, Maximus and OLTL um, to do another Fed. It's particularly, um, you know, easier to get them to do it if you can argue that something has changed, that the person's deteriorated, there's been some change, or that there was something wrong with the first Fed that meant that it wasn't really accurate. Um, and we've had a number of cases where the first um, assessment really didn't fail to pick something up, and then we've talked to our client about the importance of fully describing all of their needs and what's important, um, um, and, and um, that has, in some cases, meant that a second um, assessment um, picked up more and meant that the person was found NFCE. Uh, another thing is to do pre-hearing, as Kate was describing, is to try to get medical director review, especially you could do that if, um, if there's a conflict between the physician certification and the Fed, and it's helpful to try to get more information into the medical director, either medical records or letters from doctors explaining the person's needs um, to try to um, enable him to have a, a fuller picture um, as he reviews it. In some cases where there is not a conflict, um, well, well, even if they're either, either way, um, in some cases, we've pushed for physician review just because it really seems like something had gone wrong with the Fed. Um, and um, in some, for instance, if the Fed was really short or completely failed to pick up on um, major, major issues that, um, that were there. If you get to the hearing, um, uh, at the hearing, uh, first of all, just in terms of who will be there, there will be an assessor there um, whose job, the assessor who did the Fed will be there, and their job is to explain how the Fed was scored. So in other words, how did the consumer answer the items? Um, you know, so, and and um, the assessor can also indicate whether they agreed with the outcome or not. Uh, in addition, uh, there will be a, what's called a subject matter expert there, and their job is to explain to the ALJ or, and to the appellant how the Fed functions and how the various responses affected the outcome. 
the doctor involved in the medical review doesn't generally uh, come to the hearing. So at the hearing, you can, you can argue and present evidence that the client's needs weren't accurately captured on the Fed and try to make the case that they actually do have three partials or one full deficit. Uh, medical records or doctor's letters uh, may be helpful. If you can get the doctor on the phone to testify, that can be very, very helpful. And um, one thing I think a number of us have had the experience in doing these hearings is sometimes in the course of putting on this evidence, uh, the ALJ or Maximus will decide that it seems like it would be appropriate to get a new assessment and it's possible that that, that suggestion will come up at some point during the hearing. Um, and so that may, that is the way sometimes these appeals go with an agreement to continue the hearing um, and do a new assessment and see um, how that comes out. Keep in mind that even if the Fed is really not working for you as a way to, as a path to proving eligibility for your client, you can always argue that the NFCE definition is met. Um, and again, that's really broad language where you can argue that your client has a disability or a condition that means that they have needs above the level of room and board and that they need a planned program of care as described in that really broad language. Uh, in the past, we had a number of cases where we ended up having to do this and we were able to talk doctors sometimes into getting on the phone and saying basically that our clients did in fact have these needs. And we won every one of those cases because ALJs really listen to doctors. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, and it's also just really important to remember and to remind the ALJ that, um, that the Fed, you know, was, it wasn't created through a regulatory review act process. It's not a regulation. It's not binding as a regulation. Uh, the definition is NFCE. The, the Fed is only a tool to try to get at that, but the actual definition is the NFCE definition. So, any more questions at, at this point? Yeah. We're just looking at the questions that have been submitted. Okay. Okay, question. Is the old aging directive 2009 still controlling for the definition of NFCE? Uh, yes. I, I, I need to look at that directive, but the definition has not changed, and so it should be, yes. Next question. Pam mentioned that assessors are supposed to ask whether people needed assistance in the last three days, not just whether they got assistance with various tasks, since they may not have been able to get the assistance they needed. Do we know whether that's happening? That's a great question. Um, it's supposed to be happening. Um, uh, we... I think we need, we, we don't know for sure. Um, I don't think, we haven't been able to actually go to any assessments. If anyone has been able to be at one and has any sense based on having seen something or um, heard their client describe it, that would be really, really useful information. We've, we've kind of hammered home over and over with DHS that that has to be the way that um, it's being done. And the assessors um, have been trained uh, that that's what they're supposed to ask. Are the CHC service coordinators using the feds to do the reassessments? Yes, yes they are. It's the same exact tool, it's just being administered by the um, by the service coordinators as opposed to the AAA um, assessors. We have another question. How does the application for waivers administered by the Office of Behavioral Health differ from this process? 
Uh, it differs. <laughs> it's a different standard. I actually um, don't don't I'm, I'm, I don't know very much, frankly, about the behavioral health waivers, but it's a different standard, and the Fed is not used. So it's going to be a completely different process. Do ALJs understand the Fed? Did they receive any training on the Fed and how it is used to get to NFCE since there are no regs? This is such a great question. Um, unclear. <laughs> um, they were supposed to receive training. We have actually not heard back from DHS um, that that training has occurred. Um, and that's uh, something that we need to follow up with them about. Um, they were supposed to have training on this. Uh, and I think that that's, that's something that we're, we're really just not sure of yet. Um, full disclosure, we've got two cases coming up, but we haven't actually done one of these hearings yet. Is there data about how many appeals have been filed and how many appeals resulted in an NFCE determination? If so, please share. Um, I, I don't know the answer to this question. We can certainly ask it yeah. and share that information if we can get it um, with the group. What happens when someone is determined NFCE? Do they immediately get services or is there a waiting period? So that is a great question. They're, if they are completely financially eligible, meaning that when their information went to the county assistance office, their income, they were within the income and resource limits, and there was no question about the transfer of assets during the five-year look back, then their information would be sent to the MCO that they selected. So this is what could have happened during the initial call, during the first visit, and potentially during a follow-up phone call if for some reason they hadn't yet made a choice. Once it's at the MCO, they have five days to do a comprehensive needs assessment, which is the um, assessment that Pam described as being, it, it uses the inter-eye home care assessment. So that's all three of the MCOs in Pennsylvania, um, and our health care top slash Keystone First in the Southeast, UPMC, NTA Health and Wellness all use um, the inter-eye, along with some other additional um, MCO-specific questions, but it's all based on the inter-eye. Once that happens, the MCO has 30 days to get services in place, means, well, to have a completed person-centered service plan that is implemented. So, ostensibly, you still have another 35 days maximum, potentially longer, unfortunately. We have seen some issues with this as part of the transition to CHC. So, I would not say it's immediate. There should not be a long waiting period. However, if someone transferred assets that were subject to what's called a penalty period, then there could be a waiting period. So I realized earlier that I sort of misspoke. During the five-year look back, the concern is transfer of assets for less than fair market value. So giving away cash, giving away part of your home, your whole home. Um, people are allowed to spend their money. They're allowed to use it as they wish in terms of buying things, living, um, making you know, improvements on their home, shopping, even gambling. It's really just when it's less than fair market value that the issue arises. And the penalty period is the amount of assets you gave away divided by the average monthly rate for a private nursing home, which for 2019 is somewhere in the $10,000 range. And that's how long you get the month for the penalty period. Okay. 
sorry. Just going to cover the last the last slide here quickly, and yeah. then we'll if we have a couple more minutes, we'll do we'll finish the questions. So we just put up a couple of issues that we've seen of so far um, that have raised concerns for for us in terms of how the Fed is being administered. OLTL has been very, very clear that assessment should not take 10 to 15 minutes. Unfortunately, we do know that these are happening. One happened for my client very recently, um, where it really felt like the Fed was just being kind of quick checkboxes off. That is not what this is supposed to look like. The Fed is a much more streamlined approach than the LCD, which was much more holistic, but that doesn't mean that it should take 10 to 15 minutes. If you hear of these happening, Please, please, please let us know. Let P4A, which is the, um, the group that sort of oversees all the area agencies on aging, let OLTL know, let everybody know. That's really, really concerning and problematic. Um, just quickly while I'm talking, I'm going to touch on two of the other issues and then switch this back over to Pam. Um, one thing we also have seen is people being assessed in a language which they are not comfortable with which they have uh, limited proficiency in. Some people might be able to speak a little bit in English, but they're really not comfortable talking about their needs extensively, especially some of the really private and personal information that the Fed covers. Um, and we have heard of many situations in which clients are not being asked, what language are you comfortable with? Do you need an interpreter? Um, and we have been able to go back and request a new FED on the basis that it was not appropriate to use the to do the FED in English without a um, interpreter. Finally, I'll talk about one thing that we were concerned about before the FED was implemented, and then we have had, I think, some reason to, to rightfully be concerned. Because the FED breaks functional eligible functional abilities into these categories and ties certain certain scoring metrics to it. We kind of played around with it to come up with situations where we could see someone who definitely meets the NFCE definition, but would be found ineligible. And one example could be with someone who has full cognitive capacity, um, or, or who, sorry, who has full cognitive capacity, so they're able to do certain things in terms of brushing their teeth and, and um, you know, with the help of home modifications, getting in and out of the the bathtub maybe, well, basic, basic ADLs, but they still need the level of care that is determined to be NFCE based on the definition. Um, and we played around with a couple of these, we thought of some situations, and I know that we have since seen them. So I think after maybe looking at the matrix and the Fed, everyone will kind of be able to see where these situations could arise. I think it's really important to think of people where we're often used to seeing, you know, older adult clients who are receiving these services, but there could be, could be people who have significant mobility limitations and are very vulnerable in terms of being able to um, work to do certain situations whose needs might not be captured by, um, by the Fed. I'm going to turn this back over to Pam, and I know I do see we have another question. We'll get to those as soon as we finish in a few moments. Another another scenario that that there's been concerns about is whether this is uh, whether the Fed actually um, accurately captures the need of people with with brain injury. And in fact, one of our first cases um, was a person with brain injury who the Fed just completely completely missed it. 
Um, so these are all um, areas that people are seeing um, uh, people who it seems to them should be NFCE, but the Fed just, just doesn't quite capture it, or people who've been in nursing facilities for a period of time and are now being told that they're not NFCE, we'd really love to hear about those cases to help us explore um, whether there are, are more changes that need to be made um, that we should advocate for to the Fed. Um, all right, so going back to the questions, uh, here's a question. So do you end up settling most of these hearings by getting new assessments? How many actual hearings have gone to an ALJ um, decision? Um, in my experience, the answer is yes. <laughs> we have settled most of these by getting new assessments. Um, again, uh, we haven't had any actual hearings yet with the Fed. I know other people around the state have had a few and can speak to this better than we can. Um, but having done these um, with, the, with the old tool, um, what tends to happen once you get to the, you know, first of all, we're able to settle a lot of them by getting new assessments. Um, and if you get to the hearing, if you get to the point where you're putting on lots of evidence, uh, and there tends to come a point where the judge will say, well, it really seems like this somehow didn't come out during the assessment. Wouldn't a new assessment really be a good way of handling this? Uh, and since it's another bite of the apple, which can be followed by another hearing if necessary, um, we've ended up going in that direction, and, um, and it was successful. Um, so I haven't had one of these in a long time go to an ALJ decision. That's all the questions that we, we have um, here. We have our contact information on this last slide. Um, I know throughout this, we encouraged you to feel free to email us with questions. Again, I'm just going to reiterate that. We're really happy to, to address any questions and also excited to hear what experiences people across the state are having because of how new this is and because of sort of how Pam mentioned, we've been able to resolve most of these by um, arguing why the, the new Fed is required and why it should be done properly. I do have a hearing coming up soon in, a, in an interesting case that kind of falls into a situation that I could imagine being problematic for the Fed and yet someone who um, is NFCE, based on my understanding of the definition, um, which comes up to the last point I want to make. I know we're over time. The assessors are supposed to ask questions of caregivers if they are available. I know at least in one case where that is not happening, where somebody, a client of mine, was receiving substantial informal support, and um, that person who was providing this very substantial nine hours a day of support was not questioned at all. And sometimes people either forget exactly what they need help with or don't feel fully comfortable for a number of reasons. It's really important that people understand that other individuals in their lives who know about their functional abilities can be questioned, and they should be. So that was my last point. Thank you so much, everyone. We really appreciate you all joining us on this, and have a great Friday. Thank you. Take care.